Welcome to the Nixon Now Podcast. I'm Jonathan Mavridis. This is brought to you by the Richard Nixon Foundation. We're broadcasting from the Richard Nixon Presidential Library in Yorba Linda, California. You can follow us on Twitter at Nixon Foundation or at NixonFoundation.org. How did the United States win the Cold War at sea? Our guest today to discuss this and other questions about U.S. maritime power is former Secretary of the Navy John Lehman. Secretary Lehman is the author of a new release book on the subject called Oceans Ventured. Secretary Lehman, thank you so much for being with us today. Well, a pleasure to be back uh, with uh, with the Nixon Foundation and the library, and I'm uh, delighted to, to uh, be uh, back as part of your program. Just to start off, why did you decide to undertake the project of writing this, this book? Well, because nobody else uh, uh, did, and uh, it was a story that had to be told, and very few people were in a position to tell it. It's an important historic story. And uh, it has many lessons for uh, for the current uh, world situation. Just to kind of start off with your with your background, um, how did you how did you embark on a career in national security uh, and naval strategy? Well, uh, my my family has. Uh, a naval tradition uh, going all the way back to the Revolutionary War, where my fourth great-grandfather, George Lehman, was uh, a physician and a privateer. And uh, uh, and my great-grandfather was uh, a, a physician's assistant in the Civil War in the Union Navy. And my father was a captain of a, a, uh, 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 an LCS in the uh, Second World War, in the War in the Pacific. And uh, I served as a naval aviator in the reserves and uh, uh, and on active duty. Uh, and uh, my son served uh, as a naval aviator uh, on the Theodore Roosevelt. So it's uh, it, it was always a, an area that had really fascinated me. And when I was in high school, I got really interested in the way American foreign policy was made and, uh, frankly, how badly it was being made in Vietnam and, uh, and elsewhere. So I, I really felt that uh, this was an area that uh, I uh, was fascinated by and that I'd like to get involved in helping to straighten out the direction of, of American foreign policy. So in, in uh, undergraduate, I uh, majored in international relations and then um, I did a, a BA and MA at Cambridge University in England in international law and diplomacy. And then I came back to Penn and uh, did a PhD in uh, uh, American foreign policy and national security. So uh, that's how I got involved. And uh, uh, I was involved with the uh, uh, Foreign Policy Research Institute at Penn, uh, whose uh, principals were Robert Strauss Pay and Bill Kintner, and they were um, uh, friends and advisors to Richard Nixon. And so when uh, uh, Richard Nixon uh, ran for uh, president uh, for the second time, uh, I uh, got involved as a, 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 an assistant speechwriter and researcher uh, for on the campaign and then worked on the transition and then was one of the first four employees that Henry Kissinger and Dick Allen 
uh, hired for uh, the National Security Council. And so I served on the National Security Council staff uh, for five years uh, and then went over to the State Department with Dr. Kissinger and uh, ended the uh, Nixon uh, Ford administrations with uh, uh, as uh, acting director of the Arms Control and Disarmament Agency in charge of all the arms control negotiations. So that's the short version of how I got involved. Looking at the subject of foreign foreign policy, um, what is the fundamental task of U.S. naval strategy? What what exactly is its mission? Well, of course, the United States uh, Navy has been the first bulwark of defense since the the uh, nation got its independence, and uh, and, and so uh, the uh, the seas are. Uh, our our great uh, uh, advantage compared to other uh, uh, other world powers because we are protected uh, by uh, the Atlantic and the Pacific uh, from potential attack, and they are our principal avenues for commerce uh, with the rest of the world. So it uh, it became pretty clear early in the, the Republic's history that uh, we had to have a strong navy uh, first to defend the country against uh, uh, against evildoers and uh, adversaries and second to ensure that uh, that american merchant uh, uh, ships uh, were would uh, be secure in trading and commerce with the rest of the world and so our first uh, foreign war was with the Barbary pirates who were uh, uh, attacking American commerce and American ships and imprisoning and and uh, enslaving American uh, sailors. So uh, that uh, is a pretty good capsule of uh, how the uh, American uh, Navy uh, became so prominent and important and essential to the defense of the of the nation during the 19th century uh, after the battle of trafalgar the royal navy commanded the seas and and uh, a great deal of the burden of uh, ensuring the freedom of the seas for american commerce really uh, was carried by the royal navy but uh, in uh, in in the uh, the latter part of the 19th century, it became clear that that it wasn't enough for the Americans to maintain their dependence on the Royal Navy to keep the seas free, uh, because our, uh, uh, particularly when the Civil War struck, uh, it became clear that our our interests were not uh, were not the same, and so uh, our navy was steadily built up. And um, uh, and it really wasn't until uh, uh, the First World War that uh, we uh, really emerged as a world naval power. And uh, while uh, uh, we, during the 30s, essentially disarmed our Navy and built no capital ships under the arms control agreements of the 1920s and 30s uh, that failed to deter 
the growth of the Japanese uh, uh, ambitions uh, and uh, and uh, that uh, lack of preparedness uh, helped to uh, uh, tempt the Axis powers into attacking uh, Europe and the United States. So after the Second World War, we uh, we had learned our lesson and maintained uh, uh, essentially maintained a a uh, uh, the most powerful nation um, uh, navy in the, in the world uh, until we got bogged down in Vietnam and uh, and then the navy was shifted from commanding the seas to being a uh, a, a power projector against. Uh, uh, against uh, North Vietnam, and uh, and so that really uh, kind of uh, changed the nature of the U.S. Navy and its mission uh, until uh, 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 until President Nixon came in and uh, ended the war, and then uh, rebuilt the Navy and uh, uh, started the rebuilding that would. Uh, when uh, President Reagan uh, came in, restored uh, the uh, maritime superiority of the United States Navy, and that has continued to the present time. But uh, we have steadily disarmed since uh, the end of the Cold War and the Cold War victory. And so now we face a a myriad of, uh, of threats, and we've got to rebuild our Navy to deter the troublemakers of the world. At the beginning of the book, you talk um, a, you talk a little bit about um, a, a key influencer in U.S. naval strategy, um, Alfred Thayer Mahon. Um, who was he, and what sort of concepts did he bring um, to U.S. naval power? Well, uh, Alfred Thayer Mahon was a, a naval officer in the nineteenth, late nineteenth century. He was a theoretician as well as an operator, and. Uh, uh, he uh, uh, he wrote uh, what was uh, uh, one of the most prominent and influential books of the 19th century called The Influence of Sea Power Upon History. And uh, that really got everybody's attention. And uh, he then uh, was professor at the Naval War College in Newport, which had uh, been set up by uh, Admiral Luce, and w- which became a major uh, forum and uh, uh, project of uh, Theodore Roosevelt, and uh, Roosevelt and uh, uh, and Alfred Thermahan were very close, and uh, uh, the. the uh, uh, theme of the influence of sea power upon history was the free free world, the West, and the United States, particularly because of its geography, had to have command of the seas. And command of the seas meant that they could, they must have the naval power to defeat any potential aggressor or any potential alliance of aggressors against the free world and against the interests of the United States. And that really has been the underlying uh, philosophy and culture of the United States Navy ever since Theodore Roosevelt and uh, basically built it into 
uh, into the uh, the primary uh, uh, doctrines of the U.S. Navy. In terms of the nation at large, um, we have World War One and World War Two, where there's an expectation to um, you know to command to command the high seas. But in periods of peacetime, you know, after World One, after World War One, and the post-war uh, World War Two. Was there an expectation, a national expectation, to scale down and create some sort of peace dividend? Well, this is the history of uh, of democracies. That uh, democracies, uh, it is not the default position, if you will, or the natural state of affairs for democracies to maintain large uh, military or naval uh, forces in peacetime. But unfortunately, it always goes too far. Certainly, uh, in uh, uh, in the uh, uh, period immediately after World War One, uh, led by the United States and President Wilson's 14 points, uh, there came to be a belief that uh, war would no longer be uh, possible because the horrors of World War One had demonstrated that there must be internationalism and there must be multinational organizations that would resolve any potential conflicts and make uh, uh, warfare uh, really uh, um, a thing of the of the past. And as a result of that, there were a series of um, naval agreements starting in Washington in 1922 that agreed to formulas for uh, the... Uh, uh, world's navies, mainly the Royal Navy, the U.S. Navy, and uh, and Japan, uh, to uh, uh, disarm and reduce and eliminate uh, the expansions of navies uh, and uh, limit uh, strictly in numbers the capital ships. And these uh, restrictions were further tightened in the early 30s and uh, uh, trouble was that uh, it was only the free democracies that observed those treaties, and Japan and uh, and uh, Germany and Italy uh, embarked on major building programs, and uh, uh, and uh, it, it really wasn't until uh, the 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 first the 1936 Shipbuilding Act that President Roosevelt and the Congress enacted that. Uh, broke away from those restrictions of the Washington Naval Agreements and started building the ships that uh, essentially uh, uh, defeated the Axis powers in World War II. If they hadn't started that major shipbuilding program in 1936, followed in 1938, and then 1940, in those three shipbuilding regimes, uh, every capital ship that uh, fought in the war was uh, authorized. So uh, it was uh, unfortunately too late to deter the aggression of uh, the Axis, the attack on Pearl Harbor, the declaration of war uh, uh, on the United States by Nazi Germany right after uh, Pearl Harbor. And uh, if it had been done earlier, there is a very good chance it would have deterred um, a, a major part of World War II, if not the whole whole thing, if it had been embarked on by uh, our European allies as well. <clears throat> so 
Uh, and then after World War II, of course, we, having uh, uh, defeated the Axis uh, uh, with uh, a, uh, a navy that uh, uh, was uh, close to 6,000 ships with over 100 aircraft carriers, uh, that was not needed, uh, uh, the navies that size. And so there was a major disarmament program, again, that uh, went too far in the early uh, years of, the, of President Truman's re-election. And, uh, and that uh, uh, was drastically directed against the Navy because it was felt uh, by theoreticians of the times, and not the Navy theoreticians, but the academics, that uh, strategic bombers could replace the whole Navy. And so the Navy's budget was severely slashed uh, the B-36 bomber uh, was uh, uh, funded to replace a lot of the Navy's roles, and uh, uh, the result was that uh, uh, the Korean War broke out, and uh, uh, because uh, it was believed by the Russians and the Chinese and the North Koreans that the U.S. no longer had the capability uh, to do anything about it because they were disarming their Navy. So um, uh, President Truman immediately uh, saw the error of his ways and trebled the defense budget, repealed all the uh, previous orders to uh, disarm and scrap the fleet, reactivated uh, uh, many of the carriers, and uh, the the uh, fleet was rebuilt, and uh, uh, soon we had the Incheon uh, amphibious landings, and uh, and Navy played a very Navy and Marines played a very major role in in pushing back the North Korean invasion, and uh, so then we had the post-Korean period. And uh, so we've already talked about that. Right. In that context, um, you know, there's a period of time where there's, um, you know, always a threat of nuclear war. Um, how much did nuclear deterrence, um, sh- how did that shape U.S. naval strategy? Well, there was a, <clears throat> there was a belief, uh, as I mentioned earlier, that uh, nuclear weapons <clears throat> uh, could deter conventional war. And uh, hence, uh, the decision to disarm the Navy and to build the B-36 strategic bomber and to uh, uh, replace conventional deterrence with nuclear deterrence. But then it emerged that uh, because of their very successful espionage uh, with with the American spies turning over so many of the secrets, the Russians were able to build their own uh, atomic bomb and then very quickly thereafter uh, the hydrogen bomb. And so there became what was called the balance of terror with both superpowers uh, having um, uh, the massive uh, retaliation capabilities of nuclear weapons. So that once more put uh, uh, put uh, the a burden of deterrence below the nuclear threshold back on uh, the conventional forces. And uh, while uh, the balance that emerged 
when the Iron Curtain came down, <clears throat> uh, was very much in favor of the Soviet Union, the Warsaw Pact, with 180 divisions lined up uh, along the Iron Curtain, and NATO never being able to muster more than 40. And so uh, with such an imbalance, NATO resorted to what was called flexible response, which was to answer the preponderance of of conventional power that the Warsaw Pact had on the central front with tactical nuclear weapons. Uh, and so, yes, uh, uh, the, we couldn't hold the, the uh, Soviet uh, Warsaw Pact divisions uh, with enough conventional power, uh, but we would use tactical nuclear weapons to counter that. However, that was a very... Um, uh, a very uh, uh, not credible uh, to deterrent because the Russians didn't believe, uh, and a lot of uh, of NATO uh, supporters and, and leaders did not believe that when the decision point came, that the Western democracies would would not pull the trigger to go nuclear. They would instead negotiate uh, with, uh, with the Warsaw Pact rather than sparking nuclear war, which is almost certainly true. And so there was a basic uh, uh, paralysis of, of thinking uh, that led to a kind of defeatism uh, in NATO. And uh, this was um, something that, that was... Uh, further intensified by the the Vietnam War and the loss by the United States of the Vietnam War and the restrictions that came after Watergate and led to a quite a period of despond and part of it was due to the fact that the navy was ignored uh, the navy was uh, uh, thought to be useful only in uh, bringing beans and bullets across the Atlantic uh, to the Central Front War. And, uh, and, and NATO had ignored the fact that geography enormously favored the free, uh, uh, free world and NATO, uh, that uh, NATO had the navies, NATO had the geography, the Warsaw Pact uh, was landlocked essentially, uh, having no world, no warm water ports, and uh, most of their agriculture, well, most of their land, their geography was north of the 50th parallel, which meant with lousy agricultural land. And throughout the Cold War, uh, Russia depended on uh, on the West for 85% of its food, and so this uh, geopolitics was ignored in shape and uh, Brussels. And the Navy started uh, making noise in intellectual circles about, hey, don't you people realize that command of the seas can, can essentially deter the land preponderance of the 180 divisions in the North German plain? Because if they were to attack, we could use the Navy's offensive power from all directions to attack the weaknesses of the of the uh, Soviet Union, and nobody's even talking about that. In fact, they were prohibited 
uh, the Navy was prohibited during this period from even having exercises uh, above what was called the Greenland-Iceland-UK gap. Uh, if you draw a line across the North Atlantic from Greenland to Iceland to the UK to the continent, uh, it was seen as a Maginot line, and the navies were forbidden, NATO navies, forbidden to go up there in force, and uh, hence turning over the Scandinavians on the northern flank, uh, de facto, to the Warsaw Pact in the event of a war. And as a result of that, uh, the Soviets came to view uh, the northern flank, and particularly the Norwegian Sea and the Barents Sea, and the North Pacific as their home waters. And uh, uh, that's where most of their uh, uh, naval strategic weaponry and their command and control was. And from those areas, including the Baltic, uh, navies, NATO navies could offensively strike deep into the Soviet Union and also directly support the, any uh, 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 forces that were attacked by the Warsaw Pact. So essentially, uh, when Ronald Reagan uh, ran for president, he ran on that platform to restore the strength of the Navy, to uh, uh, stop just trying to contain them in this silly Maginot line of the GIUK gap and move from containment to rollback and start using uh, the... Uh, rebuilding the naval force and using it offensively to exercise in the areas right up to uh, the northern Soviet Union and to run and practice attacks into the Soviet Union to demonstrate to them that, number one, they could not stop us from doing that in the event of war, and number two, uh, to uh, uh, demonstrate that... Uh, uh, we could use that to neutralize any advantages they could uh, uh, they could achieve in uh, uh, in in their tremendous preponderance of army forces in the, in the North German plain. So that was the heart of the Reagan strategy. It was a forward strategy, and it played a major role in bringing about when the. Soviets realized after these exercises went on year after year under Reagan that they couldn't stop us, that they couldn't do anything about it. Uh, and uh, the military demanded a trebling of the budget for the northern flank. And essentially that made it clear to Soviet leadership that they were they could not compete along with uh, President Reagan's uh, uh, forceful support for Star Wars. And essentially... Uh, uh, Gorbachev realized that they were going bankrupt and they could not compete. And that's when he started uh, uh, negotiating seriously. And that led to the crumbling first uh, uh, in Poland and then Czechoslovakia. And soon there was no more Warsaw Pact and the, that was the end of the Cold War. Let me let me ask you um, for a, a brief moment to touch upon uh, President Nixon and Henry Kissinger's uh, naval policy. You had mentioned that both were um, believed in naval supremacy and uh, building um, building up the navy. Um, what was their general philosophy at U.S. naval policy? You also mentioned that they were somewhat obstructed by Congress uh, in the book, and um, 
they also had adopted a policy of detente, which sometimes uh, fit in their general policy, but sometimes, um, I guess, contradicted of what they were trying to do. Well, it's a very interesting period. Both uh, Kissinger and President Nixon were very pro-Navy, and and they were navalists and geopoliticians. They were, uh, in in a more simplistic academic jargon, uh, they were realists uh, uh, rather than idealists in power politics. And they wanted a large navy, and they wanted one and believed that the, the, a large navy could deter the Soviet advantages uh, on the uh, central, uh, central front. And uh, uh, they fundamentally believed that the balance that could, be, uh, that could contain and then uh, bring about the ultimate uh, uh, end of the Cold War was uh, strategic nuclear parity, uh, which would make nuclear weapons unusable, really, unless uh, unless there was uh, some uh, some real breakdown of uh, relations, that we could not match the advantages of the Warsaw Pact's uh, 180 active and 100 reserve divisions in in Central Europe. But we could balance that with naval, clear naval supremacy. But unfortunately, they did not have control of Congress. And Congress, uh, particularly um, as Vietnam uh, went on and after its winding down, uh, would not fund a larger Navy. And in fact, the Navy was, was uh, uh, grinding itself down because... They weren't able to maintain the ships. They were all the all the capital ships were used in this land war in Asia in Vietnam. There was no modernization to speak of, and Congress would not support what was necessary after the uh, end of the war. They Congress uh, demanded, the, as you rightly said, a peace dividend. Uh, not just a dividend, but the peace dividend, which basically uh, prevented any rebuilding of the naval force. And so uh, the, President Nixon and, uh, and Henry uh, pursued actively the attempt to ameliorate this with, uh, through detente and through negotiations no, but they had they had a weak hand because Congress was was not backing them up in rebuilding the force that would make uh, provide any incentive for the Soviets to uh, to uh, really negotiate and uh, and begin disarming. Uh, so that was the tragedy, uh, the real tragedy of Watergate, because that removed the leverage from the executive branch. And uh, that uh, the legislation that followed in uh, the Watergate Congress, elected in '74, uh, did lasting damage to to our ability to uh, deter the Soviets and greatly enhanced the capabilities of uh, the Soviet Union to use their uh, growing military superiority to translate into. Uh, national liberation movements, so-called, in Latin America, their interference 
uh, all over the world, the declaration of the Brezhnev Doctrine that the Soviet Union promulgated publicly that they had the right to intervene in any nation where uh, where communism was threatened. And uh, uh, it was a very dark period. And so uh, uh, it, uh, uh, it, it was uh, one of the things that helped to bring about uh, the election of Ronald Reagan uh, uh, finally in 1980. And you talked about that. You talked about winning, um, building up the Navy um, and winning the Cold War in the Reagan administration. Um, just as a final question, um, what do you hope um, current leaders uh, and future leaders will learn from this history that you've written? Well, President Nixon always like to say history does not repeat itself, but it certainly rhymes. And today's international situation rhymes a great deal uh, with the threats that President uh, Nixon and uh, and President Reagan uh, faced. And uh, and so it is the hope that the book, in accurately recounting and factually recounting what actually happened, how the Cold War was won uh, without fighting, uh, could lead to a better understanding of the need to restore our ability to deter uh, the Chinese, to deter the North Koreans, to deter the Russians, and to deter the Iranians from uh, their carrying out their uh, their current uh, uh, temptations to take. Uh, 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 take advantage of the weakness of the West militarily to uh, uh, shift the balances in each of those areas. So it is uh, it is to be hoped that uh, that uh, by fo- refocusing on how the Cold War was won will uh, lead to an understanding of how we can restore deterrence and prevent other wars from breaking out, which are threatening uh, on a number of fronts today. And this can all be done as Reagan did it without breaking the bank or bankrupting the uh, uh, the American budget. Uh, it, 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 uh, it is not going to take a, a, a Truman's trebling of the defense budget to do that. And uh, it can be done very affordably and uh, uh, hopefully, people will will see that and uh, draw uh, the appropriate need for action from it. Our guest today was former U.S. Secretary of the Navy John Lehman. His new book is Oceans Ventured, Winning the Cold War at Sea. Thank you so much, Secretary Lehman, for joining us. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Please check back for future podcasts at nixonfoundation.org or on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Spotify. This is Jonathan Mavroida signing off.